Today we complete our series, Three Traps and a Dead End. If you remember with me, our first trap was the Pharisees. They came and they asked questions about the poll tax to Jesus. Jesus gives them an answer and they uh, don't have a reply. They go off to regroup. The Sadducees come, they ask Jesus a question about the improbability of the resurrection. Again, Jesus replies to their question in a way that they are completely silenced. The Sadducees go off to lick their wounds. And the Pharisees, having heard that the Sadducees were silenced, decided they would give it one more try. They gathered together, they came back to ask Jesus about what is the greatest commandment of all. When they ask Jesus that question, Jesus gives a reply, and the Pharisees are just left standing looking at each other without a response. And now it's Jesus' turn. Time for a dead end. So let's look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Now that while the Pharisees were gathered together there, Jesus asked them a question. So the Pharisees are just still gathered with Jesus. They've just gone through this exchange. They've got nothing to say. And now it's Jesus' turn as those guys are standing, staring at each other with this dumbfounded look on their face. Everything has failed. And so Jesus then says to them, What do you suppose concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, if you notice here, Jesus begins his question this dead end, by making the statement, what do you suppose? Now, if you look back in verse 17 of this chapter, you can see how this thing all got started. In verse 17, the Pharisees say to Jesus, what do you suppose? And here we have Jesus in verse 42 saying, what do you suppose? And Jesus is bringing this completely full circle here. He is starting with the same phrase the Pharisees started the first trap, and he is beginning his dead end with the same kind of phrase as if to just kind of lead these guys into this narrow alleyway that will come face to face with a dead end. So Jesus says, what do you suppose concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? Now this is a question that would be of the same type of question that if somebody asked, what college did Kevin go to? I mean, if you're here any time at all, you're going to know how to answer that question. It's just a given. And so the question here about whose son is the Christ or the Messiah is just a given. All of these guys know the answer to this. This is not a hard question. They know that the one promised to be the Messiah is the son of David. It's automatic. Now I want you to notice something here before we look into these questions specifically. That Jesus said, what do you suppose about the Christ? Now that right there ought to clue us in on what Jesus is fixing to do with his questions. This dead end is not so we can just observe how Jesus completely shuts down the religious leaders. This dead end is so we can observe Jesus making some teaching, some statement about the Christ. And we know from studying Matthew up to this point 
that the whole Gospel of Matthew has been written to establish the truth that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Look back at Matthew chapter 1. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. Right there where the gospel starts with this affirmation that Jesus is the Christ and He is the Son of David. Which is exactly what Jesus Christ is bringing out here in this exchange with the Pharisees. Who do you say the Christ is? Well, we know that Jesus is right here talking about Himself. And we know through the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew is from from step one in the Gospel made it clear that Jesus is the Christ and He is the Son of David. And in the first two chapters of Matthew, he affirms that two times. Look down in verse 16. The end of verse 16, Jesus Christ, who it, Jesus who is called the Christ. And then look in chapter 2, verse 4. They're going to see the one who's been born, the Christ, the Magi. So right here in the first two chapters, we see th- three times where Matthew has established the reality that Jesus is the Christ. And throughout the remainder of Matthew, all the way up into 22, Matthew has been affirming some perspectives on Jesus. So when we get to 22, and Jesus asks this question, what do you think concerning the Christ? We know that he's asking a question that is revealing something about himself. This is not speculation. This is self-revelation. He's revealing about himself. And what Jesus Christ is going to reveal is something our very salvation depends upon. We need to make sure we get this. So the Pharisees say the son of David, automatic answer to this easy question. This is not hard for Jesus to establish that the Messiah was to come from the line of David. Many places in the Old Testament affirm that truth. The Messiah is to be born into the family of David. Automatic. Question number two and three is where the dead end really unfolds. Verse 43. Into verse 42 they answer son of David. Verse 43. He said to them, Therefore, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I place your enemies under, my, under your feet. If therefore David called him Lord, how is he his son? Now look in verse 43, and I want you to note that there's a lot here in these two little questions. I want you to notice here, first of all, how does David in the Spirit, notice that phrase, in the Spirit. Now this little phrase is similar to what happened earlier in, uh, in the 
in the traps with, with the Sadducees. If you look back at the trap number two in verse 31, you're going to see that Jesus is going to make a statement about the Word of God. In verse 31, he says to the Sadducees that, that the Word spoken to Moses, which Moses recorded in the Old Testament, is in fact God speaking to you Sadducees. And so what Jesus Christ does is He says that the Word of God that was written down is a word from God to you who read it. That is an incredible statement that we saw in the second trap. And here in this dead end we see another glorious truth about the gift of God's Word. You see, David spoke what Jesus is referring to in verse 43. It's Psalm 110. If you want to turn to Psalm 110, we're going to look at that in depth here in a minute. But, but Psalm 110 is spoken and written by David. But Jesus affirms that what David spoke and wrote was spoken in the Spirit. So the very words that David penned when he wrote Psalm 110 were words that were inspired or directed by the Spirit of God. And so we have in two places in this series where Jesus Christ has laid the foundation for the understanding that the Word of God is written by God through men. What that means is when you pick up this book, written by men, everything they wrote about God is because God inspired them through the Spirit to write it so that we don't just have the words of men, but we have the perfect words of God through the unique authors of men. We have a book like none other in all history. This is not just a book of historical writings. This is not just a book of religious expectations. This is God revealing Himself personally through the written Word, written by men, inspired by the Spirit. The reason why I want you to see those two little things in this section is because every time you open this book, you need to have the right objective, the right perspective towards what you're reading. This is not a book that tells us how to be Christians. This is a book that God speaks to us through. This is the revelation of God. And what that means is, this is how we come to know Christ. This is how we come to know how to follow Christ. This book is essential to you knowing God. You want to know how to be a Christian? You better understand what this book means. Because when you understand what this book means, you've heard God speak to you. And when you hear God speak to you, then you know Him. And that's what Christianity is. Knowing God through Jesus Christ. And this book is God's words delivered to us through men by the Spirit. So know this book. Study this book. And listen to what God has to say to you. Did you catch Zach's testimony? Part of his testimony this morning was the reading of God's Word and how God spoke to him. And now he's following Christ because of what God said through his Word.
to his heart. Listen. So let's listen this morning to what God says in this passage. Because if we can get what this passage means, then each one of us will have this morning heard God speak to us. If you hear God speak to you, you know what to believe. You know how to follow him. So let's look more in depth here what Jesus Christ is doing. He says, therefore, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And then he quotes out of Psalm 110. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies under your feet. And then he follows up with this next question. If therefore David called him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus Christ just affirms that, that the Messiah, the Christ, is in fact David's son. But if the Messiah is David's son, then why here in Psalm 110 does David call his son Lord. Now you've got to recognize that Jesus asking this question to the Pharisees with no explanation, the Pharisees not following up with, what are you talking about, implies to us the reality that Psalm 110 was understood by the Pharisees to be talking about the Messiah. And when we walk through Psalm 110, you're going to see why that is the case. But the Pharisees know that Psalm 110 is a psalm that is revealing something about the Messiah. And Jesus is bringing up this issue of they affirm totally that, Je- that the Messiah is the son of David. And so Jesus is now bringing up a psalm that actually teaches something about the divinity of the Messiah. And he says, if you affirm that the Messiah is the son of David then why is it over here in Psalm 110, David calls his son Lord? And then he says, if in fact that's what's going on in Psalm 110, which is what is going on, then how is it that the Messiah is David's son? Let's boil all that down together. Jesus is asking this question. If the Messiah is the son of David, how can the son of David also be deity? How how can the son of David be God, Lord? And if the Messiah is Lord, is deity, well then, How can he really be David's son? So you can see with this question that the Pharisees' heads would probably be spinning at this point. In fact, the end of this exchange says that no one is able to answer him a word. And that no one has the courage from that day forward to ask him anything else. I mean, they they have hit the dead end. We're not only going to respond to you, but none of us are brave enough to say one more thing to you. We don't get any of this. We're checking out and going a different route. The dead end has happened. Now what's sad here is that the Pharisees 
had all the ability to verify that Jesus Christ came from the line of David. They could determine his lineage very easily. Jesus Christ being born in the line of David is not even a question. And they had more than enough proof to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But they rejected him. And they instead decided they would destroy Jesus. And in literally just a couple days, they are going to successfully destroy Jesus Christ. Or so they think. So they think. I want to walk through this Psalm 110 very carefully with you because, again, Jesus Christ is revealing something to us here about himself that is absolutely essential for our salvation. Let's look at Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. See the, the kingly image there? So we have someone in the line of David who is king on the throne, and Yahweh, that first occurrence of Lord, is Yahweh. Yahweh, the, the God of the Old Testament here, the God of the Bible, says to my Lord, David's calling one from his lineage, Lord, and then he attributes to him some divine characteristics. God is saying to the Messiah, I'm going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I'll stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. What David has just proclaimed here, prophetically, is that Jesus Christ is a king who is at the right hand of the Father. Let's take it just in the terms here. The Messiah is at the right hand of God the Father. To be at the right hand of God the Father is a place that is incredibly important of great prominence. And notice that God is going to take all the enemies and place those enemies under the feet of the Messiah. There are two things that ring true through the New Testament thematically about the Messiah. One is the Messiah is at the right hand of God the Father. Two is that everything in this world is being brought into subjection to the Messiah. All the New Testament affirms that that's exactly what Jesus Christ is going to be. The Messiah at the right hand of the Father who will one day experience all the enemies of God being brought into subjection under Him. Everything in creation will one day be brought into subjection to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Now, verse 1 says, sit at my right hand to the Messiah. Verse 5 is the Lord God saying to the Messiah, I'm going to be at your right hand. Now, notice what 
verse 5 and following is about. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. God is at the right hand of the Messiah, and the Messiah is the one who will dispense judgment. See, the Messiah here is attributed divine qualities. Only God is judge. But He has given judgment to the Son of God. Jesus affirms that in John chapter 5. The Father, who is the rightful judge, has given the opportunity and the authority to exercise judgment to the Son. John chapter 5 verse 22. So we see here that the Messiah, who is at the right hand of the Father, for the Father to bring all the enemies under His feet, also has the Father at His right hand, while He exercises judgment, bringing forth His just judgment over all creation. Now I think it's very interesting that you give this picture of two right hands. One, the right hand of God is the Messiah, and the other, the right hand of the Messiah, is Yahweh. Now, there's no way that that could be possible unless the Messiah is fully God. Which is exactly what Psalm 110 is establishing, which is why Jesus Christ is asking the question, if you think that the Messiah is the son of David, which is me, then how here in Psalm 110 is David calling him the Son of God. And if the Messiah is the Son of God, as Psalm 110 teaches, then how is He also David's Son? Jesus Christ has just affirmed what Matthew has been communicating all the way through. That as the Messiah, He is both fully God and fully man. Understanding that doctrine is essential to our salvation. If you don't understand what Psalms 110 is teaching, along with Jesus' exchange here with the Pharisees, you cannot be saved. This is the heart of the gospel. I don't know that there's ever been any more significant truth that I have proclaimed on a Sunday morning than the two primary things I've said to you this morning. That this book is God's Word written through men by the Holy Spirit so we might know God. And that Jesus Christ as Messiah is both fully God and fully man. No one like Him. Now look here at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4 in Psalm 110. Before Jesus Christ, the Messiah is declared to be judged with God at His right hand. This is what the Lord says. The Lord God has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Alright, so what we've seen so far in Psalm 110 is that the Messiah is king who is reigning as God. That the Messiah is judge who is judging as God. And now we see that the Messiah is priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is that all about? In Genesis chapter 14, we're introduced to the character of Melchizedek. What happens is Abraham, who was Abram at that time, 
was off fighting this war against certain kings to free his, his faithful nephew Lot. And he conquers these kings. And when that's all done, this guy who is the king of Salem, who is a priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek, shows up on the scene. And he blesses Abraham. And Abraham then gives a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. Now think through this with me. Abraham, out of his lineage, comes a man named Levi. Are you familiar with what Levi is? The tribe of Levi? In the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi makes up the priesthood of the Old Testament. Moses and Aaron, they leave Egypt with all of Israel. Aaron begins to be the first priest among the Israelites to engage them in the worship of the God who's delivered them. You know what tribe Aaron and his sons are from? Levi. The tribe of Levi is the tribe where the priests of God are coming from. Now notice here that Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. So who's greater? Melchizedek or Abraham? Melchizedek. Because the one who blesses is greater than the one who receives the blessing. Then tithe is given. Who receives the tithe? The one who is greater or lesser? The one who is greater. Melchizedek receives the tithe of Abraham. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and all who will follow him. So Melchizedek is of a greater order in priesthood than the priests of the Old Testament in the line of Levi. That's the first thing you've got to realize about Melchizedek. He is from a priesthood of the Most High God that is significant, more greater, more important than the priesthood we're going to see through the entire Old Testament. Now, when we're introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we're not told anything else about him until Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, under the inspiration of the Spirit, David says, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we've seen the order of Melchizedek superior to Levi by what's said in Psalm 110 and then also affirmed in Hebrews chapter 5 and 7 is that Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. He had no genealogy, no parents. He, he had nothing that stopped his priesthood. He has a perpetual priesthood. And so we see that the order of Melchizedek is one that's superior to any other established priesthood, and it's one that is perpetual, one that does not end. And so God says of the Messiah... You have been made a priest. I'm not going to change my mind. Nothing's going to stop this. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And by the way, king of Salem, this king of Melchizedek, is the king of righteousness, king of peace. And God is saying that the Messiah is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The highest of orders. One that lasts forever. One that is of righteousness and peace. I want to tell you this morning that unless Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, he cannot be a priest 
for us in the order of Melchizedek. And God declared that's who he is and nothing would change. You know what that means for you and I? If Jesus Christ is priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, that means that he is king, he is priest, and he is judge. And because he is both king, priest, and judge, Jesus Christ as Messiah, after being raised from the dead, is at the right hand of the Father, and he is waiting for all his enemies to be brought in subjection to him. And while he waits at the right hand of the Father, he is functioning as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, waiting until the day he returns to judge all those nations that will be brought under his authority. That's who Jesus Christ is, and that's exactly what he's saying in this passage. I want to tell you how Jesus Christ can be both Son of David and Son of God, which is communicated throughout Matthew. Because God declared that's who He would be as Messiah. Because this is the plan of God in order to redeem creation. There is no other way we can be saved except that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, functioning as king, priest, and judge. Now, here's the significance for your salvation. You've got to hear this. If Jesus Christ... By the way, do you recognize that most every other world, major world religion affirms the humanity of Christ? They have no problem with Jesus Christ being from the tribe of David. No, no issue. But they deny Jesus Christ's deity. He cannot be the Son of God and the Son of David. Why do they do that? Because if they affirm Jesus Christ being the Son of God, they're wrong. The Muslims, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the church Scientologists, all that stuff, Christian science, they all believe in Jesus' humanity as an incredibly important man in the history of the world. But they all deny His deity. And you, don't want to know, you want to know the one common characteristic through all those world religions that affirm His humanity but deny His deity? The only way you can get saved is by doing good. That's it. The only way you can be saved if Jesus Christ is fully man but not fully God is by doing good things. And we all understand how far that gets us. I mean, there's nobody who does enough good to be able to enter the presence of a holy God. And so for us to be saved, we have to understand what it means that God has sent a Messiah who is fully man and fully God. And here's how you unpack that. Jesus Christ could not substitute for you in the sacrifice for sins if He was not a man. How could a non-man substitute for a man? doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ had to become flesh in order to substitute for you and I in receiving the just penalty for our sin. Now, the only way that Jesus Christ could receive the penalty of our sin fully is if He is also God. Because only God could bear the infinite number of sins committed by all humanity and pay for them in full. 
It takes the infinite person of God to fully pay what it takes to remedy our problem of sin. Jesus Christ could not bear our sin unless He is a man. He could not pay for our sin except that He is God. And because He's fully God and fully man, your sin and my sin has an answer. It's Jesus Christ. Unless Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, we have no mediator between us and God. The only way Jesus Christ can truly mediate between God, who we cannot see, who we cannot know, who we cannot be with, who we cannot approach as humans in our sin. The only way that we can have a mediator between God and us is if God Himself mediated. But the only way that God Himself could mediate to people is if God Himself became a man so that He might mediate between God and man. The only way that we can have a mediator, an advocate, a lawyer, who one who comes in our defense and pays our penalty is because Jesus Christ is fully God, can mediate to the Father, and Jesus Christ is fully man, can reach down into our misery and grasp us out and take us to be saved. He's the only one. There's only one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. If you don't get this truth that Jesus Christ has declared, you cannot be saved. Oh, but if you get this, how glorious it is to know that in the plan and the heart of God He determined before time began to leave His glory and take on flesh and become obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, to be raised again full of power and glory in order to be the reigning king, in order to function as a priest forever, in order to dispense judgment according to His justice. See, Jesus Christ as priest forever, is not like the priests of the Old Testament. You know the priests of the Old Testament? There's a lot of them. I mean, if we were to list them today, we'd be here a long time after lunch. Not a good idea. You know why there's so many priests in the Old Testament? Well, because they kept on dying. They had to get a new one. That one died, and they had to get a new one. That one died, they had to get a new one. You know why Jesus functions as a priest forever? Because he overcame death. He reigns forever. That's right. You know what else is interesting about the priests of the Old Testament? Before they could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, you know what they had to do? They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. You know what Jesus Christ never had to do? He only offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why he's priest forever. Do you know that Jesus Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father waiting for all his enemies to be brought under his feet? He is functioning right now as priest forever, interceding constantly for those who have trusted in him as their mediator, their substitute sacrifice. And he is waiting For the day when he returns to be the judge of all the nations who have been brought under his authority. Do you know what that means? 
It means that Jesus Christ is the dead end for every single one of us. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. Jesus Christ is the dead end of every single person who has ever lived. Every single one of us will come face to face with Jesus Christ. And when you come face to face with Jesus Christ and you come to that dead end, there are two options when you come to that place. One is to be rescued into eternal life because He is your priest forever. And the judgment He dispenses upon you will be on the basis of His righteousness, not yours. Option two, to not have Jesus Christ as your priest forever and just to experience Him as judge and have His wrath poured out on you eternally. That's the dead end. Every single one of us will face. And the only way to be delivered into salvation is by trusting in Jesus Christ, King, Priest, Judge, forever.